Thanks for joining us for part three of Judge Curitan's interview. We talked uh, just fascinating, gave this fascinating story about the um, courtroom, and we're going to append that to to this. But since that's not on the video, do you want to talk a little bit about the first physical? The court, the court, the court of appeals. The how we. Uh, I got that magnificent. Bill, yes. Well, it, it, uh, uh, our first chief judge was Alex Sanders. I don't know whether, I'm sure you know Alex. Most people know him. Uh, Alex and the attorney general were walking across the uh, state house grounds there, I'm told. And uh, Alex was saying, you know, we've got to find a place for the Court of Appeals to meet. Because right then we were meeting in the uh, block building over there in one of those hearing rooms. And, uh, and Dan McLeod, the Attorney General, said, well, Alex, you, you're aware of the fact that the Calhoun building, when it was built, uh, the top floor was built for the uh, Supreme Court to operate from. And uh, Alex said, no, I didn't know that. And he said, yes, and there's a courtroom up there somewhere. So they go up there, and uh, the story is, is that the Supreme Court at that time was operating out of the State House. They built that, uh, the, the fifth floor of that uh, Calhoun building form with that magnificent courtroom and all marble and all that. They refused to, to leave the State House because they were an equal, coordinate branch of government, and they thought symbolically that would somehow uh, uh, reflect on them if they left the State House and moved over to the Calhoun building. So they just flat out refused to move over there, even though they built the top floor for them. Uh, but anyhow, Alex and, and, and Dan McLeod go to the, to over there, and they had uh, covered up everything, you know, with uh, this, this uh, drop ceiling and all that. So they actually go up there and take some of those panels out. And sure enough, there's this magnificent ornate ceiling up there. And they, took, uh, they also uncovered the wall, and there was this, at least some of this marble and stuff on the walls as well. Uh, so uh, they got with the budget and control people and whatever else they needed to do, and they uh, got that building for us. They had to. They ended up having to import some of some some of the marble is genuine. Some of it is imported false, but you really can't tell the difference if you go there now. I can't tell the difference between the false stuff and the the real stuff, but. Uh, and then Alex uh, says that if, when it finally gets to Charleston, uh, uh, the port of Charleston, they couldn't get it because uh, it was, you weren't supposed to import it from Italy or somewhere, wherever they got it from. You weren't supposed to import it in the first place. And so they had to get all that cleared. So eventually he got the marble and got it on the walls over there. Well, but it's an interesting. Beautiful courtroom. Well, thank you. And then I also admire the uh, suites of offices that you have. And you also tell a good story that you were, Judge Sanders invited you to suggest what things you might <laughs> like to do your, your suites. Yes. Be before, uh, before the renovation process started, Alex uh, sat us all down and he uh, would ask one judge after another, what do you want in your chambers? And 
that they wanted different things. For example, Randy Bell, who was a different sort of fellow himself, a very brilliant guy, uh, but he thought big, you know. I, my being an old country boy, I didn't think on a, the same plane that he thought on. So he would ask them, what do you want? And so Randy said, well, I, I want a fireplace in my uh, office. And somebody else wanted to uh, uh, make sure we had uh, a workout room and all that somewhere and all kinds of things, you know. So Alex, when he got to me, he said, well, what do you want, Jasper? I said, I just want a bathroom. <laughs> and so, sure enough, we all got bathrooms. But no fireplaces. But no fireplaces. And you also said if you had to do it all over again, you would have made the formal office much smaller and yeah. the workroom yeah, much it, bigger. Yeah, the, it, uh, that's right. They, they had these little workrooms. Uh, they had these big offices out there just sat there because normally you just put, you, you would work in your workroom. And the workrooms were probably one-third the size of that huge office out there, I would, have, I would have done that differently, too. I would have made the formal office a lot smaller and the workrooms a lot bigger. And am I right that some of the judges maintained their main offices elsewhere, out of, out of Columbia? Oh, yes. Most of them do. Uh, right now, the, uh, the only, uh, let's see, there are... Out of the active judges, well, now with Gathers coming aboard, it'd be two of them that uh, that have their main offices here. All of the other judges have their main offices back in their hometown. And and the interesting thing about it, the offices <coughs> here are, are very large offices, and you go back to their hometown, for the most part, they're, they're in little, little offices, small offices. Yeah. It's it looks like it ought to be facility or big part in a state office facility. No, in, in the county, the counties uh, provide the offices for them, and the and those offices usually are not nearly as uh, plush as the offices are here. Judge Goolsby, when I spoke with him, talked about it almost like a, a monastery because I was impressed with just how quiet it is when mm -hmm. you go up there. Right and. Uh, he said how often, you know, how rare it is to, to see people that you kind of work in an ivory tower atmosphere. Right, right. Uh, yeah, except during court week, uh, you really don't see the uh, judges that much up there from out of town. Uh, right now there's Judge Gooseby and, and myself who are working uh, in, by order of the Supreme Court in something like a senior status. Uh, but other than two of us, the only other judge there on a full-time basis would be Judge Bruce Williams. He's even on a different floor from us. He's down there on the third floor. And it, it, of course, this office doesn't have all that paneling and uh, whatever that is, uh, wood that the others have. But it's, it's, it's brighter and it's larger. And it's, a little bit larger than the offices on the fourth floor where the main offices. And now that they opened up the third floor for judges, there's uh, three of them down there now. Uh, judge Williams, Judge Huff, and Judge uh, Short are all down there now. And you know, if I were an active judge, I probably would want to be down there too. Can you talk a little bit about 
what makes for a good appellate judge and if those qualities are different from, say, a good circuit judge or a good Supreme Court justice? Sure. Um, of course, whatever kind of judge you are, you, you need to be able to, to listen and to uh, realize that uh, that particular case is, is uh, maybe the litigant's only opportunity to get justice. And uh, so fairness, I think, is, 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 is one of the greatest uh, characteristics of a judge, whether he's a pallet or trial. Uh, the 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 trial judges I remember and and uh, I, I thought the the most of were those who would let you state your case and would rule rule fairly uh, whether to rule for you or against you and I don't know if that's any different from appellate uh, court judge except. Uh, Trial judge makes decision by himself. Appellate court judges usually with somebody else. Uh, the appellate court judges, unlike the trial judges, need to be able to uh, uh, read a lot and uh, uh, got a, probably more than a trial judge like to read, like to uh, research questions and um, dig into them and come up with what they feel is fair. Uh, not only fair, but is the law, and if they can figure out what it is. Uh, and they've got to figure out what the law is. In every case, the trial judge has to uh, a rule based on what he thinks the law is, but knowing that if he makes a mistake that somebody will probably uh, correct it some way up the line. He just really doesn't have the time to spend on a particular issue that an appellate court judge has. He knows that his ruling is not going to be written in some book somewhere uh, for a posterity like the uh, appellate court judge. Uh, the appellate court judge uh, got to realize that his rulings will probably impact a lot of people and, and not just the litigants in the case like, uh, like many or uh, most of the uh, trial uh, judge decisions. I, I recognize some trial judge decisions, they know it's an important case and it's going to end up uh, impacting a lot of people either either the way he decides or the way some appellate court decides it. But, uh, you know, I, I think, though, basically, it's, it's whether you're at the appellate level or the trial level, you try to do what is right in the case and what is fair in the case and uh, not just what is expedient. Can you talk a little bit about Alex Sanders as the first Chief Justice? <laughs> uh, Alex is a unique sort of uh, individual. Yeah, I'm, I, I probably knew Alex for 
at least 10 years before, uh, probably longer than that, before I became uh, a member of the uh, Court of Appeals. Uh, Alex uh, was the kind of individual that uh, he had a, a special way of, of dealing with people and getting, bringing the best out of them. Uh, he was not a confrontational sort of individual. He uh, expected a lot uh, from you, but he, he didn't de demand it. But he, he sort of worked with you uh, so that you would want to do your best. He, uh, he uh, knew a lot of people, had a lot of contacts, and that was a very, uh, very much an advantage uh, as chief judge of our court. He had an excellent relationship with the Supreme Court and the justices over there. He had uh, been in the legislature with a lot of them, if not all of them, because at one time I believe every member of the Supreme Court had been a member of the legislature. Uh, and his work with them on le at the legislature was very helpful. Alex uh, w was very much respected by the bar, and he had uh, worked with uh, the bar a lot. Uh, he knew people in the legislature, and so he he could uh, he could talk with them in terms of uh, of getting uh, funds and that sort of thing. I, I think he was very helpful helpful to the Supreme Court in getting funds for the judiciary. So Alex was a very influential person, and I think uh, we were very fortunate to have had him as our first chief judge. Were you surprised when he moved on? Alice always said he never stayed in any place more than about 10 years. So I, w I wasn't surprised. We were disappointed, but uh, not surprised. What's your opinion of the quality of the legal representation you've seen as you've heard cases over the years? Has it changed over time? Uh, well, you know, there are a lot more lawyers now. Probably they're, they, they probably specialize a little bit more now than they did back then. Uh, back then, you, uh, a lawyer would handle a case at the trial level, and he sort of followed it through if he needed to appeal it all the way to the uh, Court of Appeals. Now, they, uh, there are uh, lawyers who are consider themselves appellate lawyers or specialty type lawyers. So I think the specialization has, has uh, moved into the appellate level as well. Uh, whether or not the representation is any better, I'm not sure that it, it, it is. Uh, there were some there, there were some good lawyers back then and some good lawyers right now. That, that we see. Uh, I, I think they're even teaching appellate stuff at the uh, law school now. So I would take that back. That probably has been a little bit, uh, there's been some improvement in the quality of appellate representation because of the specialization uh, process.
Do you think the rise of the mega law firms has had any impact on the quality of legal representation? Well, uh, I would guess so in the specialty sort of areas because now they, uh, these bigger firms have lawyers specializing in the various areas as opposed to the journalists before, so they, they're bound to, to know uh, more and, uh, uh, than somebody who's a generalist. And also the law has gotten a lot more complicated over the years too. Uh, you know, uh, I, I, would, I would think as somebody uh, who uh, dealing in bankruptcy law now would do a better job and a more specialized job than an individual who uh, handled one every now and then 25, 30 years ago. Uh, so, yes, I, I think that the uh, mega law firms and specialization uh, has impacted and for, probably for the uh, positive, too, uh, the, uh, the quality of representation. Can you talk a little bit about judicial temperament and how you conduct yourself on the bench? <coughs> yes. Uh, I think ju judicial temperament in judges has really has improved tremendously. The judges cannot now say, say some of the things that they could say when I first started practicing law. Uh, you know, it, a judge back then could just flat out chastise you and say anything he wanted to to you almost and, and, uh, and get away with it. But now, of course, we've got, uh, we've got the various commissions and uh, various bodies around that uh, police both the lawyers and the judges. Uh, so I think that has impacted, because there are restrictions on what you can do and what you can say, especially in the gender area uh, and in the uh, racial area maybe, you, you just don't see uh, judges doing some of the things now that, that they used to do. Uh, so uh, as far as my personal uh, temperament, I think some of it's sort of ingrained in you. You, you know, you can make an effort to uh, to change your temperament to some to some degree, but I think I think a lot of it's ingrained. And I think the if we've got a better bench in terms of temperament, it's, it, it probably comes in the selection process because that's one of the things that the uh, persons. Who are uh, who are charged with selecting judges? Look at and that is temperament. Now, you know, I look upon uh, in in at the appellate level, you're dealing with lawyers, you know, and not the litigants. But I look upon uh, lawyer as promoting his client's case, and I try not to get personally involved in the case to the point that I'm going to uh, show my personal, any kind of personal bias, bias because if I got a real personal bias, uh, I ought not be uh, uh, here in the case in the first place. And of course, it's right easy to get out of a case at the appellate level because there's other judges who can hear it, so unlike uh, the trial level, you know, 
it's a little bit more complicated to get out of the case once you get into it. At, at, but at the, at the appellate level, we have, first of all, we have standard disqualifications for certain firms or, or persons or, or bodies if we feel that we uh, have had too much involvement with them and that sort of thing. We don't think we can give a fair uh, and impartial uh, uh, decision regarding them. But no, I, I saw it right up front if there's, if, if there's something in in the past that's going to keep me from dealing with this particular uh, party or the lawyers representing the party, then I just get out of the case. Uh, but temperament, I try to treat uh, the lawyers like I would want to be treated. And I have, you know, I remember not being treated too well a few times in the past. Can new members of the court New judges on the court have much uh, impact early on. Oh, very much so. Uh, it's not. We don't have a, a seniority process like uh, like you can't participate or, or. As a matter of fact, some of the uh, newer members of the court. I just sort of look at what's happening now with our court. Uh, some of the newer members, depending on how much time and effort they put in the cases, they might have more impact than some older member who uh, did not put as, uh, as much time and not an effort into uh, delving into the uh, intricacies of that particular case. So yes, uh, uh, everybody's you know has got the same vote and you can always not go along and we make an effort to come up with the consensus if we can in a particular case. But just because you're the new boy on the block doesn't mean that you don't have as much to say as somebody else. Now, obviously over the years, uh, the, uh, especially like the chief judge or somebody like that, you know, they, gonna, they're going to listen to them a little bit more maybe. Uh, but in the end, they don't have to go along with with uh, what that judge is saying or doing. If if they disagree, they can always have their voice. What do you think the um, impact has been of continuing legal education? Well, you know, uh, I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing. Uh, I think we all get... Uh, a little bit dated in in, in uh, our knowledge base, and I, I do think though that uh, it may be more helpful if you are uh, dealing in one area of the law to sort of concentrate your CLE more in that particular area. Now, I think as a practical matter, some of the lawyers are so busy, they wait around near the end of the year and they just pick up any CLE they can just to meet the requirements. Uh, and, and in that regard, it may not serve any real useful purpose, but I think the overall idea of CLE, and that is to keep you current in the law, is good. Can you talk a little bit about the criteria you use to select your clerks? 
Okay. And, and what the clerks do for you, because different judges, I think, use them slightly different ways. Different ways, yes. Uh, right now, we uh, I'm I, I'm furnished a uh, staff attorney uh, as a clerk because I, I handle a re reduced caseload in terms of the the cases I handle, the appeals I handle. Uh, however, as to the motion work, that is, the, I guess you're familiar with what motions are. I'm sure the other people are. Uh, what motions are is. I handle a lot of the motion work that comes before the Court of Appeals. That mo the motion work uh, is worked up by the staff attorneys themselves, so I deal with a lot of staff attorneys on the motion work. I, I have one staff attorney that's assigned to me to do my uh, cases. I, uh, what I look for is not where the uh, attorney uh, graduated from law school. I look some. I look at their grades and uh, some of their work, the memos and stuff that they've written. But I look for uh, analytical skills and maturity uh, in individual individuals. I got now, for example, a staff uh, the staff attorney I got working for me. I helped select her, and, and she's. Uh, has a master's degree and it worked out there in the field for a number of years before she went to law school. Uh, she's a very mature individual. Uh, she doesn't mind uh, working. Uh, and so that's what I, I, I look for. Uh, somebody who is going to be there on a consistent basis somebody who um, can make some mature judgments, somebody who has good analytical skills, somebody who can write. Uh, at the appellate level, it's very important to be able to write. Uh, and she's, she's a good writer. Uh, so that's what I look for. On the next episode, Judge Curitan reflects on the justices that have had a significant impact on the South Carolina court system and his reasons for pursuing the law.